Welcome to BX47 Today. I'm Jess Noonan and as always I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Hi Jess. Today we'll be chatting with Aaron Organ who's the Director of Ecology and Heritage Partners. Aaron has 20 years experience in the environmental field including 17 years as an environmental consultant. Aaron previously worked as a field ecologist in East Gippsland in Victoria and has worked as a ranger and firefighter in Queensland and Victoria. He also has extensive experience in national park and reserve management throughout Australia. Aaron has extensive knowledge of flora and fauna species in ecological communi- communities and has played an important role in providing advice on several projects in infrastructure, mining and exploration, large-scale environmental effects statements and environmental impact assessment. He's been a lead author and co-author of over 400 projects and provided expert advice to a range of clients across various industries, including wind farms in Victoria, South Australia and Tasmania. Aaron also has experience in long-term ecological monitoring throughout the Illawarra Escarpment in New South Wales and various urban development projects throughout Victoria. Thanks for coming along, Aaron. How are you feeling? Yes, good. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Peter and Jess. Aaron, can you explain to our listeners what is an ecologist? Um, yeah, look, uh, an ecologist, for those who aren't aware, ecologist is a, a person who studies and applies their knowledge and experience um, in the area or in the field of um, environmental science. So looking at the interaction between how animals and plants uh, yeah, interact with the environment and surround. So it's a, it's a branch from a, a biology area um, or the discipline and uh, essentially, yeah, it's just the study of the interaction of plants and animals in the environment. How did you get into ecology? Um, so, look, it's a really good question. I actually ask that question of a lot of people who are coming through our organisation. Um, I've always had a passion for the environment ever since I was a kid growing up uh, northern suburbs of Victoria, of Melbourne, uh, and also on the Mornington Peninsula. So, always um, going down and catching frogs and lizards and um, yeah, having that general interest in. in um, in the environment and that then went through high school right through to university uh, where I completed uh, my qualifications and then yeah now in terms of what I'm doing now so I've always had that interest in being outdoors and had a passion for um, for plants and animals. Aaron along with archaeology it um, ecology is one of the sexy professions at the moment. Would yes most definitely it's um, <laughs> I think it's pretty mainstream now like over the last say 15, 20 years uh, for any, we mentioned impact assessment or any any project that has a potential impact on the environment, so the um, ecological processes or threatened species and the like, there's a requirement to determine what's there and, and what that project may, uh, what impact that may have on, on the environment. So there's policy and legislation that dictates what's required. And how has the field changed, do you think, since you started? Uh, it's like I said, it's pretty much mainstream. There's, we've learned a lot about uh, various species and their, their habitats. Uh, the legislation has in Victoria, so I'm just looking at Victoria, but I guess more broadly on a national level in Australia, it, there is that legislation in place that protects biodiversity. Um, and greater awareness. Yeah, look, um, I think there's the ability now that people with social media and um, technology these days where you've got various apps where 
um, you know, information is at your fingertips, so to speak. So I've got one of those Aaron with a little nature apps. So I can go to the field, into the bush. That's right. And I hear the bird, and I play that, and it recognises what bird. So it is. and mm. look, that's just amazing. Like I, um, I didn't mention before, but I'm a non-executive director of Earthwatch Institute, and it's a fabulous. Um, uh, organization that uh, really promote citizen science so that awareness and education is um, fairly important like I said that's how I started out and I see the younger generation is where we should be starting to starting with them to ensure that that's passed on for future generations in that the passion the interest the care um, and that it's you know transcends right into you know how we operate and interact with the environment so um, yeah, citizen science, technology, uh, the various apps where you can collect data uh, and submit data and then use that data to look at trends in populations and whether things are you know, increasing, uh, declining. Uh, I've seen those on rivers where you take photographs and things like that to judge the river levels. As yeah, that's right. And they've yeah. got various photo points uh, across uh, Australia and trails where people can have interactive um interpretation of and there's uh, the bird trails. census as well yeah the victorian bird census one of the big things too is that we i've been working uh, with melbourne water for a number of years over 10 years doing uh, analyzing a lot of their calls for uh, the frog census so um, many years ago i used to go out there with um, tape cassette decks or whatever mm. they were at the time record the call and then go back and analyze the calls but these days you can actually uh, record the call using your iPhone or um, iPad and then it's uploaded and then um, we analyse the calls to validate the species. Um, so that's just amazing. You get a large data set and you look at trends in uh, new species. So there's a number of frog species in Melbourne that have um, uh, been become established mm. that aren't uh, originally from... Uh, or they're outside their range. So there's a number of species and also there's species that are declining that we're aware of as well. So it's a really important tool. Um, so yeah, that education and, and technology has been, um, and the use of technology has been paramount to collect that data. What's the most interesting site visit you've ever been on? Well, that's an interesting one. Um, <laughs> and look, I, I think it, it's one of the questions I get asked about what's the, you know, the benefit or uh, what's the best part of your job. Um, I think being an ecologist is that uh, having an inquisitive nature, so going out there um, wanting to find out more, so you know, looking for uh, you know, a new invertebrate or um, uh, a threatened species in a new area. So in terms of um, an area, uh, I've worked in um, central Queensland uh, right through uh, Victoria, so various regions. So a number of our employees, one week they could be working up in the Mallee in northwest Victoria and then the following week up in the Alps. So it's very diverse in mm. terms of the So, so the they're different like ecological detectives, Jess. They are. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. right. And um, uh, so, and then that goes right through not only in our field of consulting, but, you know, ecological research where you've got, you know, academia, uh, so the universities, and then you've got research um, institutions as well. So, um, yeah, the discipline is quite broad in terms of the, the various organisations that go out there and do the surveys and monitoring. So your company does a lot of different things, Aaron, Ecology uh, Partners. Yeah, so Ecology and Heritage Partners. Sorry, Ecology so, um, and Heritage Partners. Yeah, listeners. yeah, so we've been in operation now for 14 years. Uh, I set up the company with a fellow director, Andrew Hill, um, and so we don't only not only do 
terrestrial ecology, but we also do aquatic ecology, uh, Aboriginal and historical heritage, build heritage, um, uh, bushfire assessment and management. So it captures, there's a lot of those things that overlap uh, to look at um, yeah, doing you know, a number of assessments and monitoring and research in those areas. So we work with um, both government authorities, private sector, uh, non-profit organisations. So it's been, um, it's quite a diverse area. The um, ecological issues facing Australia are quite considerable. Are they beyond us, do you think, or do we need to prioritise and spend our resources on the top picks? Uh, it's a good question. So ecological triage, so whether we should just focus in on uh, one particular species, whether we should invest our last bit of money on the orange belly parrot where there might only be you know, less than 20 birds left or whether we should be looking at the next threatened species. Um, you know, we're dealing with, um, they say, it's well known now, the, the um, sixth wave of extinction. So we're going through the um, Anthropocene stage where essentially um, we're seeing mass extinctions across the globe. So there was a report that came out late last year um, by the Living, it's called the Living Planet Report by um, WWF. Um, where WWF? Worldwide Fund for Nature. Uh. Um, where they, they've done an assessment or a research over a number of years. So between 1970 to 2014, where um, the population of wildlife has decreased um, by 60% globally. So we're experiencing massive uh, issues with climate change, um, plastic pollution in our oceans, um, degradation of our waterways. So it's a, it's a pretty significant thing that a lot of, this, a lot of the impacts are irreversible. There are some positives, but we'll get to that a yep. bit later. Um, Aaron, does the general public misunderstand ecology? I mean, there's lots of parts of it that are rather unsexy. Um, it's not all about cuddly koalas. Uh, yeah, look, it's... And, and dolphins and whales. And, and it's exactly right. Like, um, if you look at in parts of Australia, uh, you've got issues with koalas, which obviously they're like you said, cute and cuddly, but then, then again you've got um, a number of threatened invertebrate species and frog species that may not be as, you know, attractive. Uh, likewise snakes, so there's that perception that, um, uh, you know, that snakes should be killed or, um, or certain species are un unwanted in, um, in a certain context, but ultimately they have their place in the ecosystem. So another example is... Um, out west of Melbourne, you've got the Basalt Plains grassland. So they're one of the most threatened eco, eco, ecological system uh, in Australia and there's only 1% remaining. And a lot of these areas have been set aside, yet people feel that it's you know grassy, weedy, attracts snakes and it's not too attractive, like a Just wetland. Just for our listeners outside of Melbourne, Aaron, that the western Basalt Plains is earmarked for a lot of subdivision, a lot of development, a lot of urban growth, that's right? Yeah, that's right. So there's a conflict there between fencing off small areas and also providing housing opportunities. Exactly right. That's uh, over the last you know, 10 or so years, there's been a lot of work done on a number of threatened species just at, on Melbourne's footstep or doorstep rather. Um, so I'll just reel off a few of them. There's the growling grass rug, striped legless lizard, golden sun moth, um, natural temperate grasslands. Um, there's spiny rice flower. All those species and communities occur west of Melbourne and they're all earmarked for development. So 
Um, there's areas that have been set aside for conservation and then there's more of a strategic approach to conserve larger consolidated areas, um, not so much in an urban environment. So you're right in the middle of all that? Yeah, definitely. So it's. Do you feel conflicted sometimes between you know giving developers advice and representing them before government or I guess I get that question get asked that question fairly regularly and I'm not suggesting anything about your integrity no I don't I don't (laughs) I don't feel that it's the what we do and what I do personally I I don't feel conflicted in that we've got a role in in our uh, area of um, consulting as versus government and academia uh, where we're providing advice with respect to the rules essentially under local planning schemes, under the state legislation. So that that changes depending on the jurisdiction. Um, so the legislation in Victoria versus in Western Australia or Northern Territory or Queensland are a lot different. So um, essentially, we're not the decision decision makers. We provide advice as to you know what the impacts, what the significance. Well, your reputation are. is number one, isn't uh, it? And yeah, maintaining that impartiality um, and being objective and and being consistent. Um, and being honest and looking at pra- being pragmatic as well that's a big one looking at you know solutions that can be achieved either on the site or outside the uh, a proposed development is that that ecological maturity that sort of um, concept um no well, i haven't heard of that concept um oh, well you've heard it here first listeners <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ecological maturity so i hope we're all getting mature in that area um we're all we got an appreciation for the environment but look i think I was saying before, with technology and social media and that, you'd think that you know, information's at our fingertips, but there is a real um, challenge that we're confronting as a society with, um, and it's actually been identified and it's been given a name, um, nature deficit disorder. Mm. So mm. with Can a lot of- Can you just explain that? I don't know much about it. Or I haven't, is it fatigue? No, it's not necessarily fatigue. It's about um i said i touched on before how as i was a growing up as a child and my parents um thought i was kicking the football down the oval but i was down in the creek catching snakes and lizards and frogs and everything so i think these days um it's probably people being protective i don't know how many people how many kids walk to school these days and walk through the local park or they're on their own down a local creek particularly in in that urban environment i think peri-urban environment plays a more significant role in in um, protecting threatened species and 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 maintaining biodiversity where there's permeability through the landscape as opposed to you know in a city um but yeah i think kids and the younger generation are being less exposed to the outdoors um, and that appreciation and understanding of uh, in the environment you know, might be waning in certain areas. This might maybe a silly question, but how do you quantify endangered species versus an extinct species? Uh, yeah, so extinct species, it's pretty clear that they're extinct. There's yeah. no, no longer... Um, but, it, but is it if there hasn't been a sighting or a, a record within, you know, 10 years or 20 years or...? Um, yeah, in terms of the, the definition, there, there would be a... A cutoff point, whether yeah. it's you know that you know, duration of ten or twenty years, um, like the thylacine, or yeah. Um, what about endangered? Is there a so percentage yeah? There's um, a classification, the IUCN classification, which a lot of the state jurisdictions apply um, when classifying 
uh, the conservation status of uh, ecological communities and species. So it goes from critically endangered to endangered, vulnerable, near threatened, uh, and that essentially um, there's a number of action plans on the state level, recovery plans under the Commonwealth Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act that are developed for a range of species uh, and then funding and commitment and action is directed to a range of those species that are threatened. Aaron, what interesting ecological research has appeared in the last, say, two years that's caught your eye? Uh, I can reel off a few um, things more broadly. So there's uh, the use of uh, modelling, so occupancy modelling for threatened species. So you know, rather than going out there and getting detailed information, doing surveys, we've got sophisticated systems now where you can um, use a number of the habitat variables and pass records of a particular species or a community and, and apply that through a, a model. So occupancy model to um, occupancy of so of, of whether whether the species occurs in a particular area, mm. uh, and then obviously going out there and collecting information in a particular area using a range of survey techniques would validate that model. And is that modelling uh, done on a state basis? Um, oh, look, the state government has used that and have continues to do that yeah. for certain species uh, and communities. Um, and the other, I guess the other interesting things is the use of uh, drones so, um, and satellite imagery. It's Pete's favourite topic. So I can't, you know, you think about if we didn't have Google Earth these days, mm. you know, drilling down to a particular area where you can see the vegetation or the waterway or, um, yeah, so Google Earth, the technology and drones, the use, you know, flying over an area using LiDAR or using um, thermal cameras. So they've been used extensively. It's really um, non-intrusive, isn't it? Yeah, you fly through and um, have a thermal camera. Um, at on, night. At, yeah, oh, no, you can, I'm not too sure if it's at night or during the day, but um, uh, yeah, then you can actually analyse the data to see, you know, for example, if there's surveys for koalas or other arboreal species, rainforest species. Um, and just that, the use of um, satellite imagery to look at for any trends or changes in the landscape, that's been pretty significant. Um, the use of various survey techniques, so radio transmitters, are, you know, technology these days, you can put them on, on smaller uh, animals, the birds, tracking their movement. So there's been a, a lot of studies done on migratory shorebirds and the data loggers where we've just been you know, amazed in terms of the data that's come out with the movement patterns of those um, northern hemisphere migrants. Um, and then their use of... Uh, camera traps when so a lot of the field ecologists out there setting up either acoustic recorders so you set up and it comes on at late at night or certain times during the day and it records the the calls of uh, animals so birds frogs bats uh, and then you can go back and analyze that data to see what species have been recorded uh, and then the cameras yeah you set the cameras up and they're motion censored uh, infrared cameras that trigger and you can take a photo. So there's been species that have been recorded uh, you know, that haven't been seen for many years using that technology, whereas in the past you had to set up traps with baits and the like. Um, so, yeah, they're some of the changes that we've seen over the, the last um, few years in te survey technology and survey techniques. In the development sector, Aaron, the population rise has been extraordinary in Australia with Victoria growing at an annual rate of 2.5%. What strains does this place on the environment and does it complicate achieving ecological improvements? Um, 
it's often I again I don't want to be a pessimist, but um, there's a thing that's come up over the last say ten or twenty years a concept around urban ecology. Um, there's winners and losers in a in an urbanised environment. Unfortunately, the species that um, are specialists, so those you know those species I mentioned out at um, west of Melbourne that require larger specialised grassland habitats or larger wetlands, a lot of those species won't persist in an urban matrix or an urban environment. So the more the greater the population, the more denser a city is the less likely you'll get those species that rely on certain habitats to persist. Whereas then in, in an urban environment with greater population, you'll get um, some of the winners in, again, using Victoria or Melbourne as an example. So grey-headed flying foxes, uh, they weren't present you know, 20 years ago or more in Victoria. So they've come in and they're now a resident. Uh, they're an endangered um, bat that occur along um, the Yarra River. And then you've got an explosion of um, rainbow lorikeets, uh, which were very quite uncommon in Melbourne, you know, 20 or so years ago. It wasn't until they've planted um, large numbers of um, uh, spotted gums and other species that are high nectar yielding species where those species have benefited. So look, with urbanisation, you get um, roads, intensification, water quality, um, degradation. Uh, one of the big things is intensification when you've got rather than a one house on a uh, 8,000 square meter, you know, lot where you can plant vegetation around that, you'll get um, locally common frogs persisting in that landscape. Whereas as soon as you get um, a denser development, you're going to, um, unfortunately, uh, you won't, a lot of those species won't persist. You'll largely get birds that are fairly common to an urban environment. Um, so those peri-urban areas are probably you know, the, all those green wedges are paramount for the protection of biodiversity ar around the, the city fringe. And, and what things, Aaron, do we know now that we didn't know 20 years ago? How, how, can you give us some listeners examples of where accepted wisdom has been turned on its head? Um, it's a good question. Uh, we always ask good questions. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, where do I start? There's Just a uh, couple of things. Yeah, so there's obviously, I said, with technology, surveys, species distribution, the how species interact with the environment, um, movement patterns, uh, you know, even looking at captive breeding for certain species. So we're dealing with, you know, been some success recently for Plains Wanderer, which was a threatened bird that used to be quite common west, you know, again, out western grassland areas around Melbourne. Now they occur northern plains of Victoria. It's the only spot really where they occur. But there's been some really um, great inroads into captive breeding and release of um, threatened species. So um, plains wonder I mentioned, zoos Victoria. But then you've also got DELP have been doing captive breeding and release of Regent Honeyeater up northeast Victoria, um, Chilton, Mount Pilot National Park. So we've learned a lot in that um, area. Also habitat restoration and recreation. Uh, so certain species we know will occupy or colonise created habitats. So there's a bit of a misnomer about, um, you know, knocking over a, a grassland area or a, a bushland reserve and, you know, we'll be right, we'll just plant back um, and recreate the habitat. Um, it's very, it's pretty much impossible to replicate. Yeah, that's what was because there. it's like the old logs have got a certain role 
oh, the it's... undergrowth have got a certain role. The canopy trees have got a certain role. Is oh, that... It comes down to the species the diversity, yeah. uh, the the structure of the community, the age, mm. uh, the, yeah, the diversity of the biota in that particular area. So it's very hard, or it's almost impossible to replicate uh, that. So you know, I know, you know, using locally indigenous species in restoration. Uh, revegetation has been pretty important in connecting up corridors um, for certain species. Uh, I think the other, you know, the other big things is that we're seeing, you know, climate change. I didn't really mention that, but you look at some of those species that are very vulnerable to those subtle changes in climate. Uh, not only temperature, but you know, the extreme heat or um, storm events where you get the flushing of streams or you get a severe wildfire that takes out you know central highlands or massive areas so the frequency and intensity of fires uh, where the species that occur in those areas or ecosystems that can't adapt quick enough because the fire frequency means that there's you know it takes hundreds of years for hollows to form um, so yeah we're learning a lot in terms of um, yeah uh, the impacts and how species adapt and change and, and use those things over time with these ongoing uh, human-induced pressures. And what about the health of our rivers? How are we tracking? Um, I've had a bit of experience in that area, but um, it's not my main area. But look, uh, I think uh, or internationally, we're not going so well. So that report that I mentioned, Living Planet Report, uh, they listed that freshwater habitats, are at the, they were the worst hit from that period from 1970 to 2014, um, when 83% of a lot of the systems internationally have collapsed. So again, drought, climate change, uh, misuse of waterways. Uh, I think more affluent countries and um, like Australia, we've got, we've got the uh, ability uh, whether it's politically funding or um, just the appreciation of the environment to ensure that we're not doing what we've done in the past. Yeah, Aaron, I want to take a contrary view. I'm staggered that Australian rivers are worse than what they were. This is internationally, though, isn't <coughs> yeah, it? Yeah, but right. I mean, in the local, I mean, there's a, the big thing, the richer a society is, the more it is able to afford better environmental outcomes. Yeah, and That's look, a given. you just look at if timing, um, just recently we were an announcement in the Darling River through Menindee Lakes where they've had major water um, transfer for, I'm assuming, irrigation that's led to significant fish kills in that system because of blue-green algae. So, you know, water regulation, uh, controls. But I think, look, in terms of species and the like, we've certainly done a lot with um, uh, reintroducing... Uh, woody debris in our waterways, removing weirs and, and barriers to fish dispersal. Like, there's certain species that need that, that migration up and down uh, a waterway. And then you look at the, um, the number of stormwater treatment wetlands, that's been a massive uh, uh, requirement and, and a thing that the development industry nationally has taken up to ensure that the water quality or the water is treated to a certain level prior to it being discharged into into a particular waterway. So, you know, that didn't occur in the past. Um, and I think... Um, clearing hasn't... And clearing's basically stopped. The yeah, use of pesticides has reduced. There's a lot more awareness of the 
catchment nature of a river system? Oh, look, again, it depends on where we are. Um, but in Australia, there's certain definitely areas across Australia that are where there's that ongoing clearance of um, riparian vegetation and upstream in the catchment that would have um, uh, potent, you know, likely impacts downstream. But, um, yeah, so it depends. There's, there's been some... Uh, some really positive out, um, stories and then, then again there's been some uh, uh, situations where the rivers our waterways haven't gone too well um, and also you know marine which we haven't really touched on as well thank you to song bowden planners who offer excellent personalized service call dave song or dan bowden through details on our website also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. Aaron, a significant problem to the natural economy, ecology sorry, is introduced to animals and plants. For example, the rate of extinction for many mammals is due to feral cats. There is also the problem with the loss of birds. And I read that there's a 2017 study that found that feral cats kill 300 and I think it's 60 million birds a year and domestic cats kill 61 million birds a year. One solution that we're floating here and others have, is there might be a levy on cat food with the proceeds being put to feral cat control and also for dogs, for wild dog control. Your, your thoughts? Um, I don't know about Help the levy, but that this. sounds like a, something that might <laughs> gain a bit of momentum. But, yeah, certainly appreciate the, um, the initiative. And there might be other ways too. But, yeah, look, you've mentioned some stark reality or realities there in terms of the numbers, definitely in the... In Australia, with the the arid zone, uh, feral cats and domestic cats are absolutely, you know, running rampant in terms of the the small biota, you know, the reptiles and frogs and insects and small mammals that they're wiping out every day. Um, so those numbers are quite astonishing. Uh, there has been a number of um, actions put forward to try and control cats. Um, but yeah, just the sheer numbers. So one of the things that there's been a lot of research looking at um, top level predators. So looking at potentially reintroducing the dingo in certain areas or other um, yeah, top of the food chain um, predators to suppress uh, uh, cats in certain areas. So um, yeah, I haven't really looked at it and I've got a but that, that idea of a levy, they're just somehow to fund this action. I mean, I've got this idea, Jess, that in the future it's going to be very Blade Runner. We're just going to send a fleet of drones out there. You, you'll notice, Aaron, that we, we tend to talk about Blade Runner in almost every... No, no, no it's, it's <laughs> a, a positive example of the future. But So we'll send out a fleet of drones that will be able to recognise cats, painlessly knock them out. I'd look... <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, you have a little little laser on like, it. Yeah, who knows what's around the corner? It's, Another it's five or ten just years, fifteen years. You could automatically just spot them and yeah. yeah. But look, what some of the things are doing now? Amazing job with um, some of the organisations where they're putting up predator-proof fencing. So, so massive areas. It's so hard um, to do. 
We know the organisations, there's various um, organisations where they've just set aside thousands of hectares, predator-proof fencing, and they're reintroducing those um, small, medium-rate weight range um, mammals that like bilbies and the like uh, in areas where they just wouldn't persist. I've seen them in the Wimmera, Jess. They're huge fences. I mean, they're seriously engineering construction job, yeah. that is, isn't yeah. it? So one of the things I did mention earlier, but in terms of funding, you'll see that there's been some amazing things achieved through Possible or other crowdfunding. So using that technology where you put up an idea. Um, there was one, for example, on... Um, looking at developing certain nest boxes. Uh, one of the recent things that have come out, and I didn't mention before over you know, the last five or so years, was the research that um, a number of people have been doing down in Tasmania looking at swift parrots. So swift parrots are the furthest flying bird in the world. It migrates between Tasmania and the mainland every year. So it breeds in um, southeast Tasmania. Um, and there's been recent w research that's come out that looked at um, predation by squirrel gl uh, sugar gliders, rather. So sugar glider was introduced into Tasmania um, many years ago, and they've got video footage of the sugar gliders actually predating on nestlings and also adult birds. So they've had a, a um, program where they wanted funding to... Um, uh, make or develop uh, a certain number of nest boxes. So that's been an amazing um, where they raised the funds within a week, couple of weeks and now they've been out there installing those nest boxes um, for the benefit of that species. So that again, that use of um, crowdfunding. So maybe we can do that about cats or something, you know, with your, with your idea, Pete, on um, with the drones and the levy. You put up a possible um, program, fund our um, levy. Yeah. Good. Well, it all started here, Aaron, with you. Um, and also on and many environmental weeds are only treatable by herbicides. Um, sometimes compromises have to be made. There's no black or white outcome. Would you say that's fair? I mean, everyone's, environmental weeds are a massive problem. Yeah, look, it's, yeah, it, that's, you're correct in that the main one of the main ways to control weeds is through herbicide application. Roundup. Uh, Roundup, and there's been a bit of publicity, as we know, on glyphosate, um, how there's been a, um, some research done on that and what impacts that may have on humans. So, I've, again, I haven't really delved into that too much, but, yeah, herbicide application certainly has its drawbacks, but then there's a range of other methods that people apply with, you know, you know manual removal, biological so control. So hard when like you've you look at um, you look at many years ago, there was a success with the biological control of um, prickly pear. So you've got Cactoblastis, which they introduced to biological control, which pretty much wiped out um, a vast majority of the plant. So, yeah, looking at that biological control of, um, of uh, introduced species, you know, they're still, still waiting for um, something that happened on the cane toad and, and other species. Well, they're bringing so. that mm. virus to get the carp, aren't they, in the rivers? That's right. Yeah, that's so that's right. got massive implications. Sorry, Jess, you were going to... Um, I was just going to say, are you an optimist on the ecological front? Uh, it's another really good question. Um, <laughs> I am gener generally optimistic. Uh, I do say to people, though, and not that I want to be negative or being a realist, but um, ecologists were born to be depressed because the more you know about the you know, flora and fauna and communities and how they interact with um, their environment and how we fit into the picture, uh, it can be quite disheartening when you see development or lack of appreciation from the community. But I, look, I think, you know, over the years, over the 20 odd years I've been involved in this area, I find that 
I'll stop and reflect on some of the positive things. So looking at strategic planning, um, looking at more broadly rather than a site-based approach, looking on a region or a um, uh, looking at potentially securing areas of land where it's managed in perpetuity outside the urban environment where uh, the ability for a certain species or species is high, for persistence is higher. So look, I'm generally uh, an optimist, but um, then again, we're... I think we're on a wave of um, some, a lot of negativity in terms of climate change. And I the think the future is our friend, Aaron. What, what are the good parts of your job, well, good Aaron? Parts. Um, and, and, and they're not so good, apart from dealing with difficult clients. Oh, look, um, good parts of the job is that um, uh, mentoring and educating and inspiring the younger generation so not only um, kids, and but also you know recent graduates who choose to take up the profession. So I think um, some people might be disheartened, like I was saying before, in terms of the destruction and negativity, and it's always about development and losing species and vegetation alike. But look, I think um, we're in a pretty strong position to make you know have a say and, and influence policy and and. Um, uh, and direct uh, a good outcome for the environment. So looking at, again, like I said, pragmatic, being um, solution-orientated rather than doom and gloom. So I guess the positive things are is that we can influence uh, policy, government, clients. Negatives are is that, um, unfortunately, uh, we try and strike the balance with development and conservation, but often um, that can't be achieved. So there's a... There's an there's a ongoing loss of biodiversity in many areas. Right. Um, Aaron, on, on, on there's some hard planning issues. Uh, sometimes developers feel that they carry the costs on ecological issues and sort of they get pinged for their development when it might be a broader issue. You're talking about offsets and what have you? Oh, not so much offsets, but yeah, maybe offsets, yeah. Env- environmental issues. What, what, do you, what are your thoughts? Um, well, on one hand... Someone might say that, who cares? Um, they should pay for it because mm. they're destroying the environment and the species are there. But on the other hand, um, you know, should they be taking the weight of, um, of everything? So I think, look, from a government perspective, there has been a change or a shift from that net gain policy, again, in across Victoria. I'm just talking about Victoria where there was a, a requirement if you removed a certain area of native vegetation that you had to look for a net gain. So it was an additionality in terms of offsets or the compensation for that removal. And that's working pretty well. But however, just recently, so the change in the policy from 2013 to the new guidelines and then the revision of the guidelines in late uh, 2017, uh, December 2017, the overall concept is no net loss. So the government realises that the, the development sector does have a a duty of care and responsibility and obligation um, to avoid and protect and compensate for that removal. But at the same time, there's other sectors or other parts of the economy that would be, that's um, directed into direct action into the conservation of biodiversity, not so much connected to development. So it's spread across a a broader area. Um, I just want to add that it's not really related to the question, but you would have noticed that recently for our listeners, um, when you look at the Victorian election, 
Uh, I can't think of you know the main parties whether there was any discussion around the environment. I think the Greens had some policy around swimming in the Yarra River again, um, but I'm just astonished that that the environment um, uh, wasn't really mentioned in terms of the political. Um, you know, looking at um, uh, you know population growth and and you know the growing pains that we're experiencing in a lot of areas. Um, but it's not not until it actually affects someone personally, that's when it hits home. So in other words, if it affects me personally that I, my water bill goes up, you know, you look at the millennium drought, again, Victoria, Melbourne, where there was water restrictions, a lot of those things, when there's a major issue or disaster, that's when people think and listen and go, actually, yep, yeah, it is an issue. Um, I think we're on the right path um, because the current government... Uh, the community are all for renewable energy. We understand that climate change is real and we need to be committed longer term to phase out fossil fuels um, and to you know, continue investing in renewable energy. So water, solar, you know, hydro, wind, which is paramount. So yeah, There um, is the flip side to energy security, energy costs. Um, just got one question. What is Australia's biggest export earner? Um, coal. There you go. So there's a there's a flip side to all this. Well, you look at the um, major proposed development up in central Queensland, the Adani mine, um, where there's two arguments there. <laughs> well, okay. In terms of planning controls and ecological outcomes, can you point to some positive outcomes? Uh, positive outcomes with. Um, with respect to having planning permit conditions, oh, planning. And, okay. You know, um, well, that's DAs for people. So out one of thing that again we've shifted from is to try and going away from that piecemeal protecting small areas of vegetation or a small or one one tree in a particular area, um, and then thinking outside the square and looking at, okay, is it better to protect that little patch now? Will that be viable in another 50 to 100 years in that context? Or can we look at actually locating or suitably offsetting or compensating for that loss for that particular development somewhere else? So the Melbourne Strategic Assessment is a prime example where that strategic approach has been applied and the biodiversity conservation strategy around Melbourne's growth area. So, but look, ultimately, the responsible authority councils have to assess an application that they have in front of them. Um, and you've got a, a range of um, relevant planning permit conditions that relate to that particular development. So it's, so it's embedded in the planning system. That's mm -hmm. what I think, Jess, we're, we're, mm -hmm. we're talking about, isn't that? Do you think there's any way that we can, we as I guess in the planning system can deal with ecological issues in a more constructive way? Um, Are there improvements that you would suggest? Good question. Um, so I think one really useful, if you're looking at purely planning, and I'm not a planner, but I've certainly had a lot of, you know, that's what we, there's that connection there. Um, but having sufficient level of protection on the local level. So we've got, you know, the Commonwealth legislation, state policy and, legis and legislation, and then on the local level, um, so I'm regularly appear as an expert witness at planning panels and um, VCAT. Um, and you can't underestimate the importance of having sufficient overlays 
and appropriate zoning in areas for the protection of biodiversity. So equal environmental significance overlays, vegetation protection overlays, and being very prescriptive in those overlays. Um, because there's been a number of decisions over many years that, that on the local level, that local significance of biodiversity is important for the local community. Uh, and there's been a number of applications and that have been, um, haven't been granted or been refused through VCAT or through council. So in terms of improving the system, um, yeah, uh, I think we've got a pretty good system in Victoria. There's other states across Australia that do things differently. Um, and you've got, like I said, the Melbourne Strategic Assessment, which has, a, I guess, an environmental levy with the habitat op obligation. Uh, um, I assume we'll have a cat food levy. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a particular message you'd like to give to our listeners? Uh, I guess going back to the start is that get outdoors more, uh, appreciate the environment, um, uh, understand what impact or interaction you're having with your local environment just in your local backyard, you know, how you're, what species you're planting, um, you know, how you're using things, how you're disposing of things, recycling. So there's, we can do our little bit for the environment and that has a cascading effect through to the, you know, broader uh, environment and community. So, yeah, just encourage people to take more responsibility, more awareness, more appreciation of what we've got because uh, we're pretty, again, we're blessed in Australia, but there's certainly other parts of, you know, other other areas that are, aren't so good. And, so, and get some apps. Mm? Yeah, and get mm. some apps, download the app. There's um, there's Climate Watch app, there's the Frog Census app, there's various, if you want to get out there with the kids, just get down to your local stream and have a listen for, you know, local frogs, insects <laughs> and and it's amazing how kids love that interaction and, and yeah, you can um, contribute to the scientific knowledge and expansion of our you know, awareness of the systems. Mm. And how do you relax and unwind outside of work? Um, well, look, I'm a bit of a workaholic. I love what I do. Uh, it's, it's always what I've, what I've wanted to do and I've done it, I can say, quite successfully. So, uh, yeah, but look, generally like travelling, um, bushwalking, bird watching, uh, bike riding. So I've taken that up in the last couple of years. So that's typically how I unwind and re relax. Um, but I probably need to mammal. do, that, <laughs> do <laughs> that a lot more, I think, yeah. And, and just what's caught your eye in recent times? I've been reading a great book, uh, 1788, which is about the brutal truth of the First Fleet. It's been really interesting. Life was very that's tough my summer reading. Mm. Hmm. What about you, Pete? Uh, everything two wheels, Jess. I've been roaring around in my little 150 scooter and uh, also push bike. And just enjoying that childhood feeling of riding a bike around the place. Uh, rail trails around the city, it's just a great way of getting around. Well, Aaron, thank you very much for that thoughtful uh, idea. And we're going to get some great, great feedback from this. And uh, we'll, we'll mention, we'll have you at the Cat Food Levy launch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I really, and look, I really appreciate the invitation. And um, yeah, thank you for, uh, for today. It's been a lot of fun. And listeners would also like to thank the Urban Broadcast Collective. It's a curated collection of urban-based podcasts that we're part of. And we're very grateful to be part of that. And you can find the details of the Urban Broadcast Collective on SoundCloud and details at our website. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Thanks Jess. Thank Thanks, you. Aaron.